Well, good morning. It's always a blessing to be in the house of the Lord and to be with his people. And I was thinking during that last hymn, we need George Beverly's day. <laughs> One that could really belt it out and, and give it full meaning. But yes, we'd rather have Jesus than anything. I want to just repeat what Pastor Brian said, and that is encourage you to every extent possible to get the church app on your phone. It's going to really facilitate and speed up our communication across many platforms, and it's just we're, we're trying to get more efficient, and this is one way that will happen, and we have help ready to get you started if you just give them a few minutes during the discipleship hour. I want to um, give an announcement that... Later this spring, probably the end of April, early May, we're going to have a baptism service. It's been a while. It's time. We need to obey the Lord and go through the waters of baptism and make a public confession of faith and let people know what Christ has done in our lives. And so if you've not yet obeyed the Lord by following him through the waters of baptism, come and see me or come, come during the week and let's talk about it. But we want to plan a baptism service uh, for the end of April, early May. So we get prepared. We'll work on testimony of how you met the Lord, what is the gospel, what does it mean to be baptized. So come and see me. And I just want to throw out a prayer as, uh, for Oroville Christian School as they're in a time of recruiting for the new school year, uh, registering students. The school is becoming more and more strategic in our outreach to the community, and we need to be in prayer as uh, culture is moving in one direction. We're trying to hold fast uh, in the Lord, and many families are finding a need to find good education for their kids. And so let's be in prayer for Orville Christian School, for the school board, for teachers, for parents, uh, and this very important ministry that we have here at the Evangelical Free Church. Well, the story is told of a farmer who regularly took his homemade products to the farmer's market each week. And he was very proud of what he was able to make and grow on the farm, especially of the homemade cottage cheese and apple butter that he could make from what he grew on the farm. So each week he would fill up two large tubs and carry them to the market with the ladles, getting ready to fill up the smaller containers that he would sell to those who would come by to buy his products. And everything went well week after week until one week he forgot one of the ladles back home. Without time to go back and get it, he thought, I need to make do with what I have, and so I have no choice but to use one ladle for the two products. And so you can imagine, he scoops out the cottage cheese for one customer and then scoops out the apple butter for the other. But the more he did this, the more the two products began to resemble each other, and after a while, he couldn't tell which one was which. He had so compromised his products. I think the lesson there is that it can happen to us if we try to dispense the gospel, the good news of, of Christ, and to teach about discipleship, but we resort to ways of thinking that come from the world, the old ways of doing things in our hearts and our minds and our tongues. And if they're not continually renewed and refreshed by the Spirit of God, we risk combining that which needs to be kept separate. So the fact remains that the values of the kingdom of heaven simply cannot be marketed with the methods and values of the kingdoms of men. And as Jesus has been leading us through this Sermon on the Mount, he has been explaining what it is that 
kingdom life will look like for those that have been set apart, that have been called, that have been forgiven of their sins, that are now citizens of this new kingdom. What will it look like? And as we move into a new uh, section of that sermon this morning, he's going to challenge his followers how they can live to influence the world while at the same time remaining faithful to the message. And the result will be lives that become more and more pure, more and more fruitful, lived out in gospel power, the joy of the Lord for the glory of our God. And so as we prepare to hear what the Lord has prepared for us in his word, I invite you to stand as we read our passage this morning, as we continue in Matthew, this today in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And this gift from God the Holy Spirit says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, as you have given us this word and you have given us this opportunity and you've given us your spirit. Would you cause your spirit now to teach us this word and apply it in our lives for the the glory of Jesus Christ, for the, the well-being of your people. And so as we gather now, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we pray in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Now, until now, Jesus has been instructing, as I've said, his disciples in what kingdom life looks like. He's teaching about what the behavior, what the expected outcome, what the results will be of those who actually know the living God. Last week, we saw that he said it was a blessing for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He said, not only will they be in good company because so were the prophets that were persecuted before them, but their reward will be great in heaven. And we saw that even in the early church, they considered it a blessing that they were counted worthy to be able to suffer for the message and the cause of Christ. And so as Jesus told the people on that day, and as he tells us today, we should be ready ready to suffer persecution as we live out the righteousness and proclaim the truth that God has given to his people. And so we begin in our time in the word this morning with our first major point, a preserving presence, a preserving presence. So think about this, in the context where he has just explained that there will be persecution and blessed are the persecuted, For righteousness' sake, Jesus goes on to talk about the impact that they're to have on the world. And so as he says that blessed are you when you are persecuted and reviled and have all kind of things said against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, he doesn't follow it up by telling them to go hide out and hole up somewhere. He tells them to get out into society and influence it for the better. The gospel and its impact... And its truth is not to be held close to the vest and hidden from the world. It is to be proclaimed loudly and lived out humbly in our world. 
In verse 13, we see that Jesus is starting to move away from the benedictions, the beatitudes that he has given us of blessed are those, blessed are they, blessed are you, to now he's giving affirmations, and we might say admonitions. We see that he's moved subtly from blessed are they to blessed are you. We saw that shift starting in verse 11, and now in here in verse 13, he will continue. He's not talking to people in general. Because the word you is in the emphatic position. That means in the original language, that's the word that's emphasized. You, he's talking about. My disciples, my called ones, you is what he wants to focus on. Not just a general whatever happens, as if somehow through the collective energy of humanity, we could somehow bring about a kingdom that resembles God. That's the social gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The charge that he gives here is that his children, his loved ones, his disciples would go out even if they face persecution. And perhaps because they will face persecution. But they're to live a life that is different than what is seen around them. And to be seen as a different type of life than those that are around them. I don't have to convince you that the, the world is in rebellion against God. That this is a dark and, and difficult and at times dangerous place. That it's rotten because of sin. It's corrupt because of how sin has polluted the human heart. Its actions are in opposition to God. Far from being by nature good, the world is in need of that which is truly good. Which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls his own to impact this dark and decaying world. And this morning, he's going to use two powerful metaphors to show what that will look like as we influence and as we get out and interact with those around us. And the first is that we will be a preserving presence with salt as a savior. Salt as a savior. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And we need to keep in mind that the you here is in the second person plural. It is for the collective people of God. We might say for the church. It's not something that I can accomplish on my own or that a couple people can accomplish on their own. It is a command that goes out. It's a statement that goes out to all of God's people. Salt in the time of Jesus was of important commercial value. In fact, the English word that we have for salary today comes from the Latin word salarium, the shortened version of sal, which is where salt comes from. And we can see the importance then of salt. Salt was of premium importance to life in the ancient world. Salt was closely tied to earning one's life, to earning one's way of life. We get the expression, he is worth his salt. From the, uh, the importance of salt as being so important in the ancient world. It was also used as an additive to food. Symbolically, it's, it's life-giving because salt, as it were, gives life to otherwise tasteless or bland food. And so if Christians are the salt of the earth, they are to be life-givers. Wherever they go, there should be the promotion of meaningful life. Not just mundane life, but life in its fullness. As Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. We should live in such a way that we are helping others flourish, develop fully in who they are, so that they move closer to loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And they do that because the way that we walk and the way that we talk and the way that we live and the way that we act is all different than the way they do those things because we have a different power source, a different purpose. We have a different identity. And the years that Carol and I spent in, in West Africa in the country of Senegal, the Senegalese were a very colorful people. And they, they're very lively in their personalities, and they had an expression, cela ajoute du piment à la vie. It means that this adds chili pepper to life. The idea is that the gospel lived out through God's people should add spice to life. As Dr. R.C. Sproul says, Christians should be those who, who make life more delicious for others. The, I, to do that, there has to be an impact. There has to be interacting with them. We, we can't withdraw from life and expect people to be impacted. We should be interacting with them and animated by the joy of the Lord, which is the fruit of the Spirit. It should overflow from us to them as we engage with them. And so we should be life givers. And so the question then this morning is, are we life givers as we interact with people? Do they experience something about the grace and goodness and joy and kindness of God as we interact with them? Or do we tend to be those who drain life from others? If we're to be the salt as a savor, we salt that adds life, salt that adds spice, salt that brings joy. That is partly what it means to be the salt of the earth. But secondly, salt is a preserver. In the ancient world, salt was used to keep food from spoiling. It would be aggressively rubbed into the meat. It would be sprinkled over food to keep it from spoiling. So then salt in that sense then keeps infection, if you will, or imperfection from coming. That means the Christians then are those who, as they impact with the culture, will stem the moral decay that we see coming because we're living for the kingdom of heaven values. It'll be the moral transformation of our own lives which will then impact those around us that will come through the preaching of the word under the power of God the Holy Spirit and the truth of our Lord living according to the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And notice the influence that Christians are to have. It is over all the earth. But this is a unique kind of salt. It's not salt for the earth. It's salt, it's salt that is for the earth. It's not from the earth. It is not something that naturally comes. It is this salt that God the Holy Spirit gives that we would be this preserving influence on people's lives. As God the Holy Spirit operates the miracle of regeneration, taking out our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, and as we have that newness of life, there will be a newness of living, a new way of living. We can be the salt of the earth. So let's hear what Jesus is saying here when he pronounces what he's doing. A statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. And then when we recognize that in a daily life in that day, salt was necessary for everyday life. Think to what he is saying. That Christians are necessary so that there's true life, spiritual life, hopeful life, joyful life in this world. In the physical realm, we need salt so that there's life. In the spiritual realm, this world needs God's people so that there will be true and spiritual life. 
so as the salt of the earth and under the direction of God and the power of His Spirit, we can be salt in a dynamic way, in a life-giving way, in an affirming way, in a positive way, whether it's at home, whether it's in the city hall, whether it's in the work office, whether it's in the church class, a school classroom, whether it's in the halls of power. We can have this purifying and cleansing and edifying effect on the culture. So if we understand that this is a pronouncement that Jesus is making about his people, you are the salt of the earth, then we will recognize then that we are to be those who should be under his influence, preserving, protecting, promoting that which is righteous, that which is good, that which is holy, that which is upright. We should be that fragrance of Christ. And my, my hope is that you so enjoy your time in the Word of God. You so enjoy the time with Him. You so enjoy walking in the fellowship of His Holy Spirit with Jesus as your Lord and joy as the fruit of the Spirit that it just overflows. That it just flows out of you to be this fragrant offering, this aroma of life, the aroma of Christ that lifts up, that builds up. It encourages. And I think this was partly behind what Paul was saying when he wrote the church in Colossae when he said this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, meaning full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we are the salt of the earth, as God is working in us and transforming us, we become those who move away from darkness to light, who move away from foolishness to wisdom, away from selfishness to service, away from immaturity to maturity and growth and hope. The salt is a saver. Salt is a preserver. And then what is the effect of salt? Believers are to be those under the, under the power of God who, who live life differently. There's a sense of, there's intentionality. As we interact with people and God is working through us, we rub off on them for the good reasons, for the good causes, for the good purposes. The truth we speak, the truth we act upon, His love we show, our, our values, our habits, our lifestyles become different than those around us. And we can even see opportunities where people's behavior changes in our presence. Their word changes in our presence. They recognize that there's something different. And it might be what God uses to stir a hunger and then to say, what is it? How is it that you live life differently? One, you, you know, in my sermons, I often point to things in church history. And the reason why I do that is our God is a God of history. And history is his story. And he is always working through his people from beginning to end. And we're just part of that story. And so it's good for us to see how we fit in. And in the 2,000 years since Jesus announced these words saying, his people are the salt of the earth, Christians have gone out and have done that. Christians have been the ones who have promoted progress and the advancement of medicine, the care of orphans and refugees, the advancement of knowledge. Much of what we know as classical music today was given by Christians or at least those who held to a Christian worldview. Much of modern science owes its origins to Bible-believing Christians who sought to understand the natural world and created one field after the other. 
Christians are those who have been used to lead the way against slavery and against the exploitation and abuse of women and children. They started societies of benevolence and compassion. Christians have promoted literacy around the world. One of the greatest dynamic driving forces for literacy in the world has been the modern missionary movement that has gone to areas where there was no written language and has reduced the languages to writing and created dictionaries and then translated the Bible into those languages so that a whole new group of people will be exposed to the truth of God's word. And then as people hear God's word, other things move in the right direction where Christian missionaries have gone. Overall health has improved. Education has advanced. Human rights have been promoted. The walls of ignorance have been pushed back. Think of our own country. In our own country, most of the first universities and colleges were started by Christians with the idea of their promotion of knowledge of the Word of God principally. And many of them started with the idea of preparing men to be in ministry. And even though things at times look bleak and we are reviled and we are persecuted and we are insulted by the culture for all kinds of things because of Christ, where would our country be without the efforts of the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Adventists who run the hospitals, who have built schools, who have nursing homes and care centers and child care centers and are still running them? We're called to have this preserving effect on the culture what do we continue to do today? If we're the salt of the earth, it means we will be those who will stand for righteousness. We will stand for the dignity of human life, the dignity of people. We will stand for the dignity of marriage as God designed it. We will promote human flourishing. We will influence others. We will promote the proper use of technologies and language and other things. We will encourage work relationships that are positive. Impacted by God, the Holy Spirit, as the salt of the earth, we will be careful in how we speak in public, how we interact with others in the stores and with our neighbors, how we will respond to events all around us. Because we know the sovereign God who is in control of all things. Therefore, we do not need to be led astray with a spirit of fear or panic, or crazy thinking. We're the salt of the earth. And as God has pronounced that we're the salt of the earth, he has also said, look, I have given you my spirit. I have given you my truth. And I have promised to be with you. So live for me joyfully and let others see the difference. It will have a modifying effect on those around us. I was a young believer. I didn't fully even understand all of this, but I was working one day as I was earning money for college during a summer vacation. And I just wanted to be a good worker. I wanted to put the time in. I wanted to love and serve the people around me. And the, the, the manager immediately over me was a little bit coarse in her language and her behavior. And she came in one time and she started to say something. She looked at me and said, oh, I can't say it that way. You're here. That was no, no credit to me whatsoever. It was just God was working in my life as the salt of the earth. And had a modifying behavior on the people around us. That's what God wants us to do. But let's consider a very opposite example. One that continues to influence us in history today. Let's consider the example of Karl Marx. 
He's a good person to analyze because his ideas, unfortunately, are more widespread than ever, though they remain just as dangerous and just as deadly. Karl Marx wrote eloquently about the injustices in the world and about this so-called future utopia that his socialist agenda would bring about. But in his private life, he was a scalawag. He was a mean-spirited serial adulterer who seldom worked and who did not provide for his children. His home was described as reckless and disordered. His children often were without shoes. And he held deeply racist views about Africans and those that he considered inferior. He had a housemaid whom he treated poorly, but mainly she was just an outlet for his lusts. He had a child with her, but he denied any property or support to that child. And it is said that he never paid a cent to his maid, just providing basic food and board. This dispenser of a utopian worldview. Workers of the world unite. It's going to bring about this so-called socialist utopia. Was a hypocritical tyrant in his own life. His views are still propagated today as if somehow they're an ideal toward which we should aspire. But they're just as dysfunctional and just as deadly as his private life. And need to be rejected because they're not based at all on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a negative example. It's the opposite of what it means to be the salt of the earth. Jesus calls us to be radically different. Conform to the image of the kingdom of God. The values of his kingdom. To be the salt of the earth. But there's a warning here. Beware of false salt. But if salt has lost its taste, he said, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's just gone through a series where he has said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But wait. What if the salt isn't being the salt? I think as we look at a historical study of how salt was used at that time, it helps us. The salt that was dug up in the first century and used was sodium chloride, which is the chemical compound of salt, but often had other minerals mixed in with it. As it would be rubbed into the meat and sprinkled over the, the food, there would be a, a season of preservation, but as water would come into the, the equation, the sodium chloride, the salt, would leach away and it would no longer be salty. And so it would be thrown away because it wasn't really salt. So on the first hand, we would say the warning is that Christians can become too compromised with the things of the world. And unfortunately, it is statistics bear that out. When we talk about those who proclaim, who are self-confessed evangelical Christians, according to the statistics, they live lives that differ very little from those around them, whether we're talking about marriage and divorce, whether we're talking about the use of money or the level of debt, whether we're talking about the amount of media that they consume or the use of pornography. So if we're doing the same things and living the same way as the people in the world, 
What do we have to offer the world? And why would the world ever be influenced in our message? As Daniel Doriani says, if the only visible difference between Christians and secular people is that we go to church on Sunday and give away money more regularly, why would they want to join us? What's the difference? We're going to live the same way. Hang on to your money. That's why I grieve when I read about another church leader, another pastor, yet another ministry that has fallen into sin and lost its reputation and its witness. Friends, I ask you to pray for me. Pray for the elders of this church. Pray that we would never become somebody else's headline and never be someone else's sermon illustration, but that we would stay strong in the Lord. That's one application, I think, of what he is saying here. And it's true. But I think there's more to the story. You see, at the Dead Sea, where much of the salt was taken during the time of Christ, there was salt and there was something called gypsum. Gypsum was a combination of calcium sulfate and seawater. It looked a lot like salt, often had some salt mixed in, but it was not useful like salt. And therefore, it would be quickly identified and thrown away because it was not real. My friends, there are warnings in the Scripture in almost every book in the New Testament about false conversions and false confessions of faith. Take seriously the impact of the gospel. Take seriously the reality that we are sinners, dead in our sins, worthy of the wrath of God, and there's nothing we can do about it except and until we repent and throw ourselves completely on the mercy of God and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There are false conversions. Be sure that you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. And when you trust in Christ alone, and he is, you are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there will be fruit. There will be growth. God does not have stillbirth. God starts and works and builds and finishes. And one of the things he does is he leads us to repentance on a regular basis, daily, confessing our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, because we all have them. We're all in need of grace. We're, we're all in need of his mercy. We're all in need of his love. I think one way we can be helped in this, and I'm influenced here by Robert Murray Shane, who reminds us that we are to stop looking at ourselves and our sin and stop looking at others and to look at him. Robert Murray Machane said, for every one look at your sins, at your fallenness, your wickedness, your wretchedness. For every one look, take ten looks at Christ. And behold his beauty and his grace and his majesty and his lavish love and his righteousness. There is the key 
being the salt of the earth. Complete dependency upon Christ. Well, if we have a preserving presence, as I just passed through here, we also have a glorifying guidance. As Jesus works in and through the church that he promised to build, he's going to show the world what a redeemed people looks like because he wants to talk to us about the true light. Now, he tells them here, you are the light of the world. And already we've heard about light as we've looked through the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 4, we're told that the light shone into the darkness to the people who were formerly lost in, in their sins, that they had seen it, that they had seen the light, they came to the light because Jesus is the light. But as Jesus turns to his people and he says, you are the light of the world, this is not an inherent light that comes from within us. It is the light of Christ that has been placed in us that is to shine forth from us. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, but they failed. God had promised, however, through the prophets that a Messiah would come, the true servant of the Lord, who would be a light to the world. We read one of those passages already during our time of the invocation, Isaiah chapter 42. I'd like to read just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 49 that affirms this teaching. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is God speaking to the Messiah. He said, I'm going to give you back the restored people of Israel, but that's not enough. I'm going to give you the nations, and they're going to despise you, but you're going to be a light to them. And Jesus came and fulfilled that promise because he is the true light, the light to the nations, the true Messiah. And so in the best sense of the word, Jesus is the new and true Israel, the new and true Son of God, the one in whom God is pleased. And so when he stood up, he said, I am the light of the world. He understood where he stood in this history of redemption and in the storyline of God. That his light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. But here he turns, he who is the light of the world, to his people and says, you are the light of the world. And that is true because we're connected to him. And in union with him, we are the light of the world. The light that comes from him so that all the glory goes back to him who is the true light. Secondly, we see the purpose of light. You are the light of the world, the text says. A city set on the hill could not be hidden. Well, if salt is to prevent decay and promote Purity, light, leads out of darkness and promotes hope and joy. And notice here that the realm and reach of the light is the world. The world that is in darkness, the world that is in hostility to God, the world of 
rebellious men and women who live and act according to their sin nature, but not according to the ways of God. In that world, we are to be a light. And we're not to hide. Just like you cannot hide a city on a hill. Because as people move on to the hill and they build their homes and they have their lights, it will be seen. The light is meant to be seen. That's the nature of light. So if Christ is our light and we have his light in us, we are called to reveal and not conceal the light that God has put in us. Some wonder if the city that he's referring to is Jerusalem. If so, in this case, it would be in the context of judgment against that city because in that day, they were not living up to their responsibilities as light. But since Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount in the areas of Capernaum, I think he's just speaking in a general sense. You, my disciples, he says, are the city on the hill. You light up the world. You cannot hide the light, so let the light shine. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They would use these simple clay lamps that had a little hole in top to pour the oil in and and a spout where the wick would come out. And they didn't give out much light if they just sat on the ground. And so they had to be put on a table where they could cast what little light they had across the room. The lamp itself was not the light. It just radiated the light. You don't take your light and you hide it. He says you don't take it and put it under a basket. That would be ridiculous to put a lamp under a basket when the whole point of light is to shine and illumine the way. So here's the application. If you know Jesus Christ, you know the gospel, and God is living in you, You can't hide the light of the gospel. But again, that light, it's his light that he has placed in us, and he wants to show it to others through us. And in the amazing grace of God, wants to use us to promote his kingdom and to proclaim his message. But the light that they see should be the light of Christ. And so finally, we look at the effects of light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine, he is saying. The light is not yours to keep. It's not yours to hide. It's not yours to simply hold to yourself and enjoy. It's his light, and he wants it to shine. And as we do that, we serve the Lord. We walk in his light. We point others to the light. We do what is right, explaining to others what is right. We walk in humility of the Spirit, knowing there's nothing we have that we did not receive. And we walk as those who are ambassadors of the Prince of Peace, because he came to bring peace between men and him and among those that he has redeemed. And so we point people to Jesus. Whatever we do in our lives, let our testimonies flow to who Jesus is, to what he has done, to his greatness, his goodness, his kindness, his lavish love. And as we do that, others should notice a difference in us. When you go to the office tomorrow, as the salt and the light guided by the Spirit of God, joyfully be the best worker in that office. 
don't have a spirit of laziness. And your friendships, be loyal to your friends. Encourage them and build them up. And your marriages, seek to build each other up in the Lord. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As you work and live in the city, let us seek the welfare and well-being of the city as the salt and the light. The gospel transforms a person, yes. It transforms a community, yes. And then God wants to use us to transform those that are around us. And that's what Jesus is saying in this verse. Life flows from light. Now, let me make one thing clear. <laughs> Good works do not save us. There is nothing that we can add to our salvation. Jesus paid it all. We will be clothed on that last day in his righteousness and his righteousness alone. The things that we do show that we are saved. But they do not make us saved. And there will be things that we will have to do. There will be opportunities for light and salt and good works. But that's the overflow of the gospel because of the indwelling spirit. Because we are now seated with Christ and in union with him. And Paul understood this. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I put on the screen Philippians 2, 12 to 13. But just listen to the passage. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means apply the impact of the gospel with great effort to every aspect of your life. And how can we do that? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is working in us, we will work. And then he goes on. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is summarizing here what he understands Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5. That the result of being salt and light will increase fruitfulness and obedience in his own life. So that when he gets to the end he will recognize there are people praising God. There are people walking in the Lord. There are people that have been raised up in their discipleship. His labor will not have been in vain, and neither will ours be. As God works in us, and these good works flow over us to show people the true light. And as we draw the attention to God and who he is and what he has done. And so let people see who Jesus is for you and what he's done for you and how he's working in you. And the result will be what? They will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It means then we will not have run the race in vain. As we live out as salt and light and others see us. And they'll say, what's the difference? Some of them might even come to faith in Christ. Some of them might change their behavior. Some of them may come and join with you. But notice who gets the glory here. Your father. You know, this is the first mention of the word father in Matthew. 
It shows the uniqueness of the relationship that believers have to Almighty God. He is their Father. That's why we pray, Our Father. He only becomes our Father because we are redeemed in Christ in a loving relationship with His Son, because we have entered the kingdom of heaven, and He is our Father, our Heavenly Father. And what did He do on our behalf? He sent His Son to redeem us. And now that we are redeemed, we are to proclaim the truth of the gospel and live it out in joyful and faithful obedience. So redeemed and empowered in Christ, Christians are, by the proclamation of Jesus Christ, they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And it will show. But if you notice, as we look back over and review what we have seen in Matthew 5, starting in around verse 10, and going to the end, that there will be different responses to us living out as salt and light. As we live as salt and light, for some it will be a response to persecute Christians, to revile them, to insult them, to falsely say all kinds of evil against them because of Christ. But for others... It will be the cause for giving praise to God, bringing them to faith, resulting in more praise for the Father. So here's the challenge. We're called and commanded to be the salt and the light. And as we live out as faithful Christians, we may experience two very different responses. But you've already been warned about them. There may be persecution. There may be praise. But whatever, our res- whatever the response to us, our response is always to be the same. Let's do what God commands. Let's enjoy God. Let's, if we're persecuted, give praise that we are counted worthy to be persecuted for Christ. If we see people growing in Christ as a result, we give praise to God that he would use people like us to proclaim his goodness to others. We are called as the church to influence the culture not the other way around. So over the first 16 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching what does kingdom life look like. He's talked about character. He's talking about action. And in the weeks to come, he's going to deep dive into specific subjects that reveal the heart that will result then in a changed way of living because of the impact of the kingdom of God. And next week, as we look at Verses 17 to 20, he will say that ultimately the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me. And what does that look like for us today? But until next week, as we think about being salt and light, what are some things we can think about during this next week? Jesus is the true flavor of life. So let's make life delicious for those around us. Spreading the flavor of life to those around us. Secondly, beware that not all salt is truly salt. Are you trusting in Christ alone to make you real spiritual salt? Jesus is the light of the world. Therefore, by his power, let his light shine through you to those around you. And as you walk then in his light, consider it great joy to obey his word, his commands, and let that fruit be on display. For it's his light, it's his truth. It's his glory to show.
that we need to keep watch over ourselves and keep watch over one another because the true light that shines through our lives should point others to Christ, but let's not be a dirty vessel. Let's be a pure vessel of that light, quickly repenting of our sins and turning from them and confessing them and reconciling with one another. And as we do that, more and more, this flavorful aroma of life will flow from us to those around us. Let us pray. I want to ask you just to take just a moment in the quietness of your heart and to say to the Lord, thank you for the cleansing, for the forgiveness, for the grace that he performed in your life. And as you do that, then tell him, Father, I want to live for you and your glory. Would you empower me so that the light of Jesus shines through me? Would you empower me that the salt of the gospel would move through my life? Father, I pray for these dear and precious ones as we gather in this place that your spirit would be at work. We so desire to be that city on the hill and all that it's meant to be. But Father, we know that it's all a divine work. And so we bow before you and say, oh God, would you do it? That you would be glorified. That we'd become more like Christ. And by faith now, Father, we say thank you for what you will do. Because you will work in our lives. And we rejoice already for the glory that you will be given as lives are transformed by the salt and the light. Oh, Father, to that end we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a great encouragement we've had this morning to be salt and light. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a story, you have a song, and so let's stand and sing Blessed Assurance as we close out our service. Salvation, perfect delight. 
visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, break from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect salvation. All is at rest. My Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Praising my Savior all the day long. a great blessing to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. You can hang around and want that app put on your phone. Just head on over to room one and the, the youth will be able to help you out. And I'm going to remain down front. Perhaps someone would like to come down and go to the Lord together over a prayer need. I'll be glad to receive you. Let's go to the Lord together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.